Hello, and welcome to the special edition of Jacob's Inflection Points podcast. Today, we are joined by Mark Wilde, CEO of Crossroll, and Donald Morrison, Senior Vice President of People and Places Solutions and Digital Strategies at Jacob's. I'm Russell Pilgrim, and I'm a Program Director at Jacob's, overseeing some of the company's key contribution to this iconic project. This podcast will showcase Jacob's role in working in partnership with Crossrail on the development of the Elizabeth Line, amplifying its social benefits whilst providing insightful key lessons for future major infrastructure investments. Welcome, Mark and Donald. How are you today? Thanks, Russell. Yes, delighted to be here. Very much appreciate the uh, the invitation. And Donald. Hey, thanks, Russell. Yeah, great to be here today and uh, great to be speaking about this state-of-the-art new railway and the, the legacy it's creating. Excellent. So, so today, um, uh, firstly, we'd really like to explore the uniqueness of this project and how you've delivered something as transformative as this in such a, a scale and complexity. And as we've got listeners from around the world, we should start by giving an introduction to the Crossrail project and program. And also, we'll then go on to Jacobs in the UK as well, Donald. So, Mark, can we start with you? Yeah, so Crossrail, um, a lot of people will know what it is, but if I just explain a little bit about the geography of London, that there are many north-south routes in London uh, in public transportation, and people will know London's uniquely, I think, like other major cities, uh, has a very dense urban network of mass transit. But for decades, even for 150 years, it's been recognised east-west routes in London have been more difficult to achieve largely due to the topography of the river, the ground conditions. So I think since 1834, a new east-west route in London has been planned. Certainly after the Second World War, when London was being rebuilt, people thought about it then. They thought about it in the 70s. And finally, in around 2005, we achieved uh, the ability to build this epic project, which is a new railway east to west, west to east across London, and crucially creating not just big trains coming into terminus stations then they go into little tube trains. Here we take suburban mainline trains from the east and west, from Heathrow and Reading and Shenfield in the east, we take them directly into the central core. So this is very much a game changer uh, project, decades in the planning. And uh, Donald on Jacobs in the UK, could you explain to the listeners um, uh, about this company? Yeah, thanks, Russell. Uh, Jacobs employs more than 10,000 people in the UK. Um, we've got 150-year business heritage um, in the UK, and we've made a long-term commitment to invest and grow here. We've got a really highly skilled talent market and a strong infrastructure pipeline in the UK. So, you know, we're really keen to grow and invest in our business here and, you know, export that talent globally. We're also really delivering a number of challenging programs which benefit communities and the economy. And I think that's something something that we often forget about. And programs like that are critical to um, building Britain and London's future. We're helping tackle some of the UK's most complex challenges to make the future better, supporting projects to safeguard the environment and improve security, connectivity, resilience and productivity. So we don't just do these projects for, for the sake of it. 
And, you know, I often challenge our people, you know, we should be constantly looking to, you know, find better ways and impactful solutions that help adapt and mitigate climate change, drive social change, spread prosperity, and meet the growing challenges facing our communities. So it's not just about the programmes. That's great. And uh, Donald, could you describe a little bit about Jacobs and Jacobs' role on, on Crossroll as a programme? Yeah, keen to do that, Russell. I think, you know, so many people don't appreciate the complexity of these challenges and how long and why these programmes take so long to gestate and then deliver. So our relationship with Crossrail goes back um, a long way. We've provided a range of services to Crossrail since 2001, right back to the early business case development. And then from 2009 as the programme partner, part of the Transcend joint venture. Um, since 2019, Jacobs has also supported um, as programme delivery lead. And we've most recently helped this iconic programme move into the railway and other guided transport systems regulations, perhaps the biggest um, step in the crossrail journey towards passenger service. Again, the complexity of doing something like that on a, on, on a programme of this scale is often underestimated. So, you know, it's been it's great to be enabling um, Transport for London to, you know, get to this point where they're controlling a, a live railway, which is safe reliable, available and maintainable. And and uh, with Donald talking about Jacobs and their role, Mark, and um, and the current phase we're at with the programme, it would be good to explain to the listeners a little bit about the current status. Yeah, well, first of all, thanks to Jacobs. Uh, I remember one of my first jobs in the railways. I started in an energy background, but in the late 90s, I, I had a job in York, which is in the middle of middle of England that people might know. And in the next office were Jacob's people working on something called Crossrail. Little did I know, 24 years later, I would be shoulder to shoulder with Jacob's getting this project over the line. I suppose, where are we at the moment? Well, we're, we're, we're very much in the home straight. We are right in the middle of what we call trial operations, which is the phase, which is kind of the dress rehearsal. The infrastructure is complete. We're tuning up this digital infrastructure to be the highest reliability. And crucially, and it might become a theme of this podcast, we are helping the operations and maintenance people get used to it. So on the day of opening night, you know, people expect this system to be flawless. We've spent the best bit of £20 billion on Crossrail over the years. And for that investment, our customers have every right to expect it to work seamlessly when it opens. So where we are right now, Russell, is we are in the process of finishing trial operations and preparing for the opening of the railway, which will be in the next next couple of months. Excellent. And that moves into a really good area um, in the learning legacy side of Crossroll. Um, we can't talk about the development of the Elizabeth line without discussing some of the fundamental challenges we've faced both technically and delivery and integration. Um, I think the listeners will really be interested to hear uh, how we tackled these, Mark, and um, and also the gaps, uh, how we found those gaps and intervention on the on the project. Could you um, just give us an overview of the key challenges uh, and how we overcome them? So construction on Crossrail started 12 years ago. You know, 2008, 2009 is when we started, and it's fair to say. You know, 75,000 people have worked on this program. And in the early years of this program, the biggest risk that was perceived was the tunnelling drive underneath London, which is 
one of the most difficult places on earth to uh, to drive a tunnel 30 meters down with big underground stations that are typically 10 stories high buried in the ground. So for the first four or five years of Crossrail, it was an outstanding success. So, you know, all, all the talk about building the Elizabeth Line, we have to recognize the incredible job done by the civil engineers at the very, very beginning. Probably, I think, in this century, one of the greatest engineering achievements to uh, produce a 22-kilometer dual-bore tunnel 30 or 40 meters below London with 10 stations in it. But really, the challenges of Crossrail are worth thinking about that by the time we got to 2018, we had an end date, an aspiration that was fixed many years ago to open the railway in December 18. And it's, as everybody would probably know, the project got into a lot of difficulty in 2018. The volume of system integration, assurance, reliability growth, what you might term the technical end of completing the project was greatly underestimated by the project team at the time. And I, I took over at the end of 2018 and as, as much as we're at the end now, it has taken us three and a half years to really integrate the system. So I think the, the key lessons, Russell, will be something around preserving the great things that have happened on Crossrail, the civil engineering, the business benefits, the oversight developments, the community engagement. But there are many lessons in how this railway has been brought together at the end. And in many ways, we haven't just built a railway, we've built an epic digital system, which I know is a particular interest of Donald and Jacobs. And I guess my real passion is that the lessons of Crossrail, good and bad, are, are kind of learned. And Donald, you're involved in a number of major projects internationally at the moment. Um, why is this such a technically complex project to work on? And how can we help similar projects of the future? You know, it's a great question, Russell, and I'm sure it's one that's on so many individuals' minds around this programme. I think one of the first times I ever really saw detail on the programme, it was in the BBC documentary. Um, and, you know, I think at that point it was described as threading the eye of the needle um, through one of the most congested subterranean London environments. And I think, you know, in a number of programmes, I think we need to take a really open view and actually realise where some of the biggest risks lie. And they're not actually in some of the civil engineering, they are around the integration. And I think it's been said of our industry in the past that we're not clever enough to make any new mistakes. I really think we're at an inflection point or we've been moving through that over recent years where we are re really learning from some of the most iconic programmes, things like the London Olympics. And there was a great government report on the 12 lessons learned there. And I think now more than ever, the actual emotional and behavioural skills are even more as important, I should say, as the technical skills. So I would think, you know, areas like that Mark's led on, like the connectivity, the collaboration and the convergence of teams to get the the, the right behaviours there. And I think we are really changing, changing the delivery and we are capable of so much more through the approach that we're taking to really operationalising lessons learned on some of these major programmes. Um, would you like to say something? Oh, I totally agree with Donald. And if you think about these mega programmes and the, the time that they take to gestate and the time to build, in this, in this version of Crossrail has taken 25 years. And if you do think of the build phase, the past 10 years, when we started Crossrail, I don't think the iPad existed when we first started to drill the tunnels in, in Crossrail. 
And really the profound change in the past 10 years of digitization happened during the development and the building of the project. And I think the opportunity for future customers, clients, big organizations like Jacobs is somehow to anticipate where the risks might occur. Not, and they might not be the conventional one, which as Donald said was perceived in Crossrail, biggest single risk was to drill the tunnels underneath London. Once that was finished, I think the team thought there was pretty much a, a relatively more straightforward path to the end. In fact, the advent of digitization meant the journey was only just starting. So I think I'd encourage all clients to start to think a bit more freely about in the 10 years it'll take to build this, what do customers really want? What will be the technological impacts? And that, that might get them a bit freer about the types of teams and the types of architecture that they might might need. And Mark, your um, your comment on timing, um, you know, in touching on the fixed end date that was in December 20, 2018. I'll, I'll start with you, Mark, and then I'll move to Donald. But uh, how did you feel when you realised the project was going to be delayed from its original opening date? So Crossrail had a defined end date of the 9th of December 2018 for several years, many years. And, you know, there's a lot of talk about the Olympics and how Olympic dates and defining dates can be motivational. They can, but when you're in mega system uncertainty, end dates can be deadly. And I think by the time we got to 2016 and 2017, with epic hindsight now, of course, it's clear that the fixed end date of Crossrail drove behaviors and decisions that maybe weren't in the best interest of the whole program. And the system integration risk was hiding in plain sight. And I guess I, I'm sure it's in every single report that's been done on Crossrail. It's noted that the leadership team at that time were driven by the end date, meeting that with ever more extreme mitigations rather than the ability to say uncertainty exists, we have a window. Now, this is really tough for leaders. It's tough for Jacobs, it's tough for clients, it's tough for governments, it's tough for treasuries. But the reality is these major programs are very uncertain. There's work by UCL in London and Oxford that says most mega programs, most mega programs are over budget. It's a reality. So in that context, you might want to think about uncertainty being a core competency of leadership teams, the supply chain. And certainly when I took this over with the, the, the chair, Tony Meggs, we decided immediately to talk in windows of uncertainty. And that provided a, an opportunity to give more space to the teams to be uh, more realistic. Because I think high performance comes from great achievements and possibilities, but it comes from hyper-realism as well. And I think the defined end date, Russell of Crossrail, did distort behaviors. And I, I'd encourage everybody listening to this to think carefully and talk truth to power, even if it's uncomfortable. But at the end of the day on Crossrail, we probably lost about a year overall by trying to mitigate a date that actually became unachievable. And you can't really blame the leadership team. I think in future, though, you have to encourage environments where leaders can speak truth to power. And Donald, would you like to add anything to Mark's comments? You probably very little I could add to that. I think, as Mark said there, it is absolutely around that environment you create. And that, that you know, leaders creating an environment where they can coalesce around some of these challenges. And I think if you, again, go back to the point I was making earlier about the gestation period for these programmes, 
I think political expediency sometimes drives the wrong decision making and we need to create that vulnerability, that transparency in the teams where they can actually, you know, come forward and to say, have we thought about doing it this way? I see this as a risk. How do you see that? How do we mitigate this as a team? And, you know, it, like all good programmes, it's really got to be the collective effort of the team. Um, and I think if we can really focus on that, it sounds so simple. But I think it is simple things that will take us to that next level of programme delivery. I mean, I agree, Donald, and it's everybody, isn't it? It's your organisation, it's governments, it's client organisations. And the, it's very difficult, by the way, because you can see it from a government point of view, it's taxpayers' money. Crossrail happens to have a very, very positive uh, cost-benefit ratio, well over two, even with the delays and the pandemic, Crossrail is still worth the investment. But convincing governments to spend billions and billions of pounds. You can see why it drives people to increase certainty. The real key is to, when you're dealing with windows, is to drive everybody to the front edge of it, but be realistic that there is a downside risk. And I, I, think, I think future mega programs around the world will really benefit from the lessons of Crosswell. Excellent. And uh, Donald, that goes on to um, a question regarding assurance. Um, uh, assurance has played an important role in the handover process. Can you provide an insight into both sponsor assurance and program assurance, which Jake has played a pivotal role in? Yeah, happy to do that, Russell. You know, one of our key roles at Jacobs is in providing performance and line of defence assurance, such as on the Elizabeth line. Our project representative team has provided independent technical advice, assurance and oversight of Crossrail and the delivery of the new railway. This includes challenging assumptions and work and providing independent clear advice and recommendation on progress of the project to the sponsors, the Department of Transport, Transport for London representatives. And as Mark's already outlined, you know, Crossrail is recognised for its complexities and required integration on all fronts. And I think the behaviours and the leaders that we put in there to drive that were, you know, kind of fundamental. And I think one of the first times I met Mark, he reminded me just of the scale of the task, the, the half a million or so individual physical and digital assets is one area that just springs to mind. You know, how do you assure all, all of that? Each one of those must go through a rigorous safety and reliability check and each be issued with a safety certification. And I can still remember that day where we first talked about that, Mark. You know, as this process has been going on over the past year or so, you know, Jacobs has provided a number of experts who are embedded into Mark's team. But it's how these experts then work together in the team, as we talked about in the, the previous question. I think that's such a great insight, Donald. And I've got to say, Jacobs have been really excellent partners over the whole of Crossrail, and particularly in my three and a half years doing this. And I'm th I think one of the keys is you've been managed to be in the programme delivering and independently assuring us in a very trustworthy way. And I think that richness has really helped us. I don't know how it's been for you, been on kind of both sides of the fence. Have you found that okay? Yeah, no, absolutely, Mark. And I think it is about that partnership that we've referred to a few times um, in this podcast so far. And I think, you know, the, the, the interpersonal relationships that build up and that foundation of trust and that focus on creating a long lasting legacy, it's not just about the project. If we keep our eye on the longer term prize, I think that really helps motivate all, all our individuals. And I think 
the relationship that Jacobs has formed with Crossrail is absolutely founded on trust. And uh, as you build that trust, it's inevitable that you're going to go through some difficult times, um, but you build trust through transparency. And I think we've done that really well as a team um, you know, with, with with yourselves and many of the other stakeholders, I think so. And I, I, I mean, obviously, I'm speaking from my role, and you know, I think sometimes in my role, in the first year, we got it wrong. We we got it wrong. You know, we we set our first opening window, and we underest we underestimated the challenge, even though we were given the opportunity to look at it. And I guess what I what I really think about assurance and why is assurance so important when you're a leader like like me in the situation I was in, and I'm certainly not unique in it. There is a lot of pressure to deliver the goods on a date. And I think one reflection I have for people maybe listening to this podcast who are thinking of dealing with CEOs and leaders in this situation, I think they can often have three biases that are very important. They are tend to have an optimism bias. They tend to have a confirmation bias, i.e. they tend to surround themselves by people who confirm that this is right. And certainly in Crossrail, there's a uniqueness bias where you tend to think, no, I'm alone and nobody else has done this before. Now, obviously, those three biases are, are, are a perception of reality. And it's why I think the levels of defense and assurance are so important. And I, I certainly think Jacobs have done brilliantly uh, for me. And I, we certainly wouldn't have got here without Jacobs and our other partners. And I'd encourage every future leader, every future CEO doing a major program to think about that 360 degree assurance in the context of making sure your optimism bias, your confirmation bias isn't resulting in management override, which to be absolutely honest is what happened in Crossrail in 2017, 2018. It wasn't that the assurance wasn't identifying these things. It was just that the management had got ever, ever stronger into achieving a date that was impossible. And I think that might be one of the core behavioral lessons about why 360 degree assurance is so important. Yeah, no, I couldn't, couldn't add anything else to that, Mark, totally agree. Yeah. And Donald, I'd like to pick up on your comment about the longer term price, uh, because really the Elizabeth line is going to be uh, great for London uh, globally and nationally as well, if you think of the interconnection with Heathrow, Great Western and the Great Eastern Railways. What will it do for the area in terms of regeneration, house building and access to employment and jobs? Yeah, legacy is a, an area I often focus on. In Jacobs, we've been on a, a, safe, a behavioural safety journey over a number of years now. And one of the best analogies I was ever given of that safety journey was, you know, how do we actually go beyond zero? We run beyond the 100 metre line like the 100 metre sprinter did. And that analogy worked until Usain Bolt came along in the Beijing Olympics. I think it was in 2008 where he was so good he was able to turn around at 85 metres and realise he was ahead of the pack and slow down. But I think on everything else, you know, when you look at just where we're going, let's think about the phenomenal legacy, you know, as a a proud Londoner uh, these days. I, you know, I look around the legacy that was created in London so many years ago that we still thrive on today. So I think that the line, the crossrail line we need to see is something that's going to be here for generations. And I think we need to take that step back, particularly at the moment with all the different dynamics that are facing major infrastructure um, investment and take that long term view that infrastructure actually paves the way for social, environmental and economic opportunities of, of national significance. You know, you asked me specifically there, Russell, around just, you know, what, what, what are the, some of the direct impacts? 
And, um, you know, in the back of the success of the London Olympics, in which Jacobs played a significant role, um, the the Elizabeth line will be a, a valuable enabler to Stratford's regeneration. You know, that's already been exponentially accelerated on the back of the London Olympics. But if I look at just some of the other statistics um, around the, the, the Stratford area at the moment, by 2030, more than 10,000 new homes will have been built um, on the park. Five neighbourhoods with fantastic green spaces planned in will be built and around a third of these houses will be affordable. A new academy has just been built, which is going to be used to educate around 2,000 pupils between the ages of 3 to 18. None of that would have happened if it wasn't for that vision of that programme. But the Elizabeth Line will now accelerate that. Stratford is now one of the best connected areas of London. I think last year, um, or sorry, pre-pandemic, uh, Stratford Station was the busiest station in, U in, in the UK, carrying 14 million passengers. But commuters will now be able to travel to work much more easily from that area because of the Elizabeth Line. And new jobs in construction and tourism have created a multiplier effect, as so often is the case. And it's estimated that over 20,000 jobs could create, be created by 2030, bringing more than five billion to the, the, the local economy of just one area of London. I particularly like your point, Donald, on Stratford. If if we can all remember, Stratford twenty years ago was one of London's most deprived areas, and now it's a thriving destination. And the local community are proud of what what's been produced there. Um, I can also, Mark, give other examples. Both mm. you and I can on Woolwich, for example, with Berkeley Homes. Uh, custom house, etc., with the regeneration there. I recently saw you uh, give an update at Tottenham Court Road, which was the same. You know, the urban realm around there has really been transformed. Um, can you add a bit to what the Elizabeth Line will bring from a transformative point of view in the city? Yeah, and I'll speak as a engineer and somebody who's proud of this, like Jacobs, and we are building a better world, aren't we? And I think. We should dream big and the elizabeth line is a bold act of will you know it, it shouldn't really be able to be done it's an incredible achievement and in one one strike we add 10 percent to the whole of london's rail network we bring one and a half million people into employment opportunities we create accessibility opportunities at the end of our railway is a station called abbey wood it's where our terminus is it's a relatively deprived area of London and one of the most emotional moments of taking this job is I went to Abbey Wood and I met a, a mother and her son who is a, a wheelchair user and he can't get a job can't get a job because it's quite inaccessible and they were really quite upset and angry that the railway wasn't going to open in 2018 because he can't get a job because when it opens this young man would only be 25 minutes away from Bond Street and they implored me to uh, make every effort to get it open because it mattered to them and I think that that's what we're here for. We're here to build a better world, to make it more inclusive, more accessible, make people mobile. And I certainly think the Elizabeth line meets all of those things. And I think the raw facts are, even if it'll cost us about 19 billion pounds to build this, there are 42 billion pounds of agglomerated benefit, and it'll be here for 200 years. And I think when we look back at it, people someday soon will look back and think it's always been there. And I think we shouldn't be shy about being bold and advocating for how infrastructure changes people's lives for the better. 
and Donald, the world, world's attention is now firmly on climate change. Um, hosting COP26 in Glasgow pushed the UK further on our target and our road to net zero. Um, I, I read recently that it's well documented that the design life of the Elizabeth line is estimated to save over 2 million tonnes of CO2. Um, as this forms part of Jacob's strategy, it'll be good to gain your perspective on this subject. Yeah, I think it's great to actually celebrate some of these achievements, Russell. And as Mark said earlier, um, it was my 40th birthday. I got one of the first iPads, Mark. So it is just over <laughs> just over 11 years ago. So, you know, I think Pro Crossrail, you know, was one of the first projects really to scale um, sustainability across a whole program level and embed sustainable thinking um, into its decision making. And Crossrail and Network Rail used the Department of Environment, Food and Rural Affairs biodiversity accounting methodology to determine the value of habitats lost, enhanced and created as a result of the project. And I think there are so many statistics that, we, again, going back to my first point here, we could celebrate in terms of the programme. You know, things like the green roofs has um, delivered to a number of the stations, new landscaping um, at a number of the portals. And despite the constrained urban nature, I love the fact that there was 85 trees planted in you know central urban, uh, central London stations. And I think if you think about the, the the way we're changing and redefining standards as well as we deliver iconic programmes like this, massive achievements have been made on Crossrail and programmes like Tideway with regard to health and safety. But you know the 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 the. the the, the achievements on air quality alone on the Crossrail programme have been significant. If a bar is set um, on a programme of this scale, we can redefine standards and the industry have stepped up to do that. So I think there's a number of really strong legacies that we will look back on and, and will become you know, just the ingrained behaviours of the future as we then look to step up the behaviour again. It's like a ratchet, isn't it? That you know, I spoke before that in, in the build of Crossrail, digitization happened the other thing that happened in the build of crossrail is thankfully a real genuine commitment to net zero and crossrail is the starting point now i think for for where the journey commences for everybody else but even crossrail and we've done some fantastic things you know all of the all of the clay that we dug out of london we built an island in essex it's now 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 is a wild 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 bird sanctuary which is just an incredible things and all the things donald said about we've set the standards for environmental management. But if you look at Crossrail, the bit I would be thinking about, and I'm sure Jacobs are onto this, we did put a lot of concrete and rebar and steel in the ground. And I think the next frontier for mega programs will be to work out how to really minimize the use of very, very carbon expensive materials. Because uh, there's no doubt we put a lot of concrete down there. And I think that'll be the next challenge. How do you build mega programs like this sustainably? So as good as Crossrail is, I think it's it's the start of a journey, not the end. And Mark, what's on that subject? What's your view on modularization? Well, that's I mean, I think that will be one of the keys, Russell, because one of the main reasons that the system integration effort in Crossrail became insurmountable at one point was it's pretty much um, you know we wired this thing up in the ground. It's like building two nuclear submarines, which is kind of the equivalent of the asset base we've built. We've put them 40 metres under London and we've actually sent an army of 10,000 people down there to wire it up. It's all a bit mad, really. What we should have done is really think carefully about modularization and built things in factories, tested them in factories, made them sustainable in factories, shipped them to site 
and plug them in. And design for manufacture is one of the key strands, I think, I'm sure Jacobs are all over this, and one of your key strands to improve productivity, improve cost certainty, greatly increase sustainability benefits will be to go for design for manufacturer. It's probably the single biggest breakthrough that could happen. Because uh, if you can test something in a factory in the middle of England and then bring it sustainably to site and plug it in, I think there'll be a huge breakthrough. And unfortunately, the industry doesn't quite think like that. I don't know if Donald agrees, but it's quite slow to adopt design for manufacture. Do you find that, Donald? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the big challenges we face is that every project is perceived as unique. Yeah. And there is some great work done at program level on scaling up DFM type facilities, but there's no continuity in the pipeline. And I think you then, you know, some of these issues then, you know, just contribute to the social divide because you you scale up and uh, train um, competent labour forces who then can't be redeployed or there's a hiatus for 18 or 24 months. So I think getting some more certainty and looking at the adaptability of skills across different markets, I think this is also another really key challenge for us. We often see clients rejecting staff because they don't have experience in such and such a market. I think as we've already said in this podcast, I think actually behaviours are as if not more important now than the basic technical skills. So how do we recognise that in the industry that we don't need a railway engineer to deliver the majority of a railway project? And you could translate that into every market that we face. It's great to have this conversation on the benefits of Crossrail and also um, ideas for the industry, which is which is really good. Um, uh, three questions, please. Uh, I'll start with Donald and then I'll go on to Mark. Uh, but... Um, a number of people will be wondering uh, to see whether the benefits of the Elizabeth Line Crossroll um, will be still there uh, post-pandemic, post-COVID-19. Perhaps people won't be travelling into the city in the same way as they used to. Do we really need to keep, continue to invest in infrastructure uh, over the world? Absolutely, Russell, you would expect me to say that. Um, but I think we, as we've illustrated in this discussion so far they compare there's just such a compelling case and i think sometimes we don't look even enough at the sophistication of the case and i love these really personal examples like mark shared of that young lad earlier about the impact of this program for him you cannot monetize that we've got experts in monetizing some of that they'll probably correct me now that they can monetize that but i think these are all the reasons why we do you know need to continue to invest in infrastructure but i think we have to do it in a much more purposeful way and you know is it absolutely providing the most sustainable connected solution for for the world at this point and i would also challenge us as an industry to actually think much more cross market and are we really delivering integrated infrastructure solutions? That's something I'm really passionate about. It's 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 looking at the connectivity um, and trying to solve multiple problems with one piece of infrastructure. I think one of the biggest challenges we need to overcome at the moment is actually trying to solve a transport problem just with a transport solution and not being bold enough on the actual outcomes that we want to deliver for a community or for society. Yeah, Agree 100%. I mean, if you take a big historical context, by 1905, 90% of London's deep tube lines were built. 1905. 
do, do we think that they shouldn't have been bold? You know, do you think we shouldn't have the Piccadilly line? So I think in the long historical context, the pandemic is important and clearly very, very serious in patronage. But over 150 to 200 years, I think obviously this infrastructure will, will stand the test of time. I would say, though, for all clients, leaders of Jacobs, leaders of um, train building companies, I think there is an accountability, though, for infrastructure to get it as right as you can, because there's no doubt Crossrail has damaged confidence. Because there's no doubt Crossrail is 15% over budget and three years late. And we're accountable for that. So I think the industry, there's two sides of this coin. I think governments and funders should back it. All the reasons Donald and I spoke about. On the other side of the coin, I think there is a real responsibility of the industry not to see this as a money tree. Because there's plenty of things governments can spend their money on. It doesn't have to be infrastructure. So I think there's two sides of the coin. And I know, I know Jacobs, so you're well onto this, aren't you? But confidence in certainty of delivery and realism of how much these projects will take is utterly critical, Russell, to retain the confidence. Because once you've, as I found out to my cost, once you've lost your reputation, it takes a long time to claw it back. Best never to leave your, lose your reputation. So, so your conclusion, Mark, in the post-COVID uh, world is that the overall long-term benefits of Crossrail outweighs the expenditure oh as long as people like me and donald can be trusted to deliver it i think it is a, a dual, dual dual relationship i think yeah of course it makes a lot of sense but governments can spend their money on a lot of things that would provide social value and social benefit i happen to think and i'm sure donald does that infrastructure is a good bet i think the industry's accountability and responsibility is to take that very seriously because it costs a lot of money and we could have spent a lot of other things on 19 billion pounds. I happen to think Crossrail is going to be well worth it, but you could see why there'd be a degree of skepticism. And I guess it's our job, Donald, to to give that feeling of certainty and confidence to our funders and stakeholders. Yeah, no, 100%, Mark. And I think actually to, you know, really lead more overtly with selling the outcomes. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think we do a good job of that. And I think we need to be much more proactive, um, you know, as we engage the multiple stakeholders and, you know, I, I use this phrase a lot, but it was said to me once, I think we really need to turn ch turn the narrative around here and make sure that the general public realise that we're doing these things for them and not to them. And I think that's been one of the biggest challenges over many years that we have not really been as overt on the benefits. And I think we actually look at maybe the general public as a key stakeholder as not being as sophisticated as they really are. Yeah. Um, so I think if we can really change that narrative, and I think, you know, Mark, you and the team have done a brilliant job of that in Crossrail, and I know there'll be a lot more to come in the, in, in the months ahead as the line opens. Um, but I think really being much more overt around that is going to be fundamental. I mean, one, I mean, that's brilliant, you know, for them rather than to them. I think one thing to reflect on with Crossrail that couldn't be anticipated, one thing that happened in the digitization space, and I know Donald's done a lot of work on this, Crossrail occasionally, at the very, very beginning, with the emergence of digital, we've ended up with a lot of digital that is what I, I might term gizmology. It's, it's actually not for the end purpose, but it's very useful. But the addition of complexity isn't very clever. So I think going forward with digital particularly, it's got to serve a purpose. And the purpose has to be safety, reliability, cost-benefit, obsolescence, 
Crossrail, unfortunately, because it was probably the first mega program to embrace a fully digital railway, we've ended up with an incredibly complex system that could have been simpler. And I'd encourage every future major project at the very beginning to get to things like minimum viable product, obsolescence management, computer off the shelf technology. On Crossrail, we ended up on the bleeding edge in far too many areas. And I think uh, organizations like Jacobs, I think one core competency you might want to develop is the ability to simplify. It might be the key core competency that governments and funders need. Because it's very easy to get carried away, isn't it, with technology that we all find fascinating, but eventually doesn't serve the purpose, or even worse, in Crossrail's sense, got in the way. Yeah, I totally agree in that relentless focus on why. Why? Mm. Yeah. So, so it's been great to, to have this discussion on, on the programme in as much depth. This brings this podcast to an end. I'd just like to thank you so much on behalf of myself and the listeners, uh, both you, Mark, and, and Donald. So thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thank you, Donald. Thank you, Russell. No, thanks both. We'll see you on the purple line one day soon. Thank you. <laughs>